I didn't choose the hymns tonight or this morning, but they've been extremely relevant, and that song is a great song for what we're going to talk about this evening. First of all, good evening, and uh, from what David said, there's some folks who weren't here this morning, so especially good to see you, especially if you come from some other churches, I think this was notified around, I think, so if you've come from other fellowships, we're especially glad to see you, and it's a privilege for me to be here. I was here a year ago, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed those few days together, enjoyed it because of the work that God is doing here, and the people in whose lives God is doing something very deep and very rich and lasting. It's uh, wonderful to come to a place where there are new believers, there are sort of medium believers, there's some old believers, and uh, all at different stages on the journey. But the journey, of course, is more deeply into the heart of God himself. That's really where the journey takes us. We, spiritual growth is not that we engage in more activity than we did before. That's good, of course. Spiritual growth is really that we are more Christ-like than we were before, not by imitating Christ, but because the Lord Jesus Christ is himself more at home in our hearts than he was before. And it's a growing in that union with him, that intimacy with him, that abiding in him that you've been talking about here in John 15, and the fruit that comes from that. Now, you don't try to produce fruit. Fruit has a natural, spontaneous it is a natural, spontaneous expression of life. And uh, it's the life that needs to be kept healthy, and then the fruit will look after itself. And in these meetings this week, we're looking into the opening paragraph, basically, of the Sermon on the Mount, a series of statements Jesus gave that we call the Beatitudes because they begin with the word blessed. And uh, I want to read these to you. Uh, now, and uh, we're going to pick up at the third one. We looked at the first two this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, I'll read from verse 3 down to verse 12. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as I pointed out this morning, this word blessed is a translation of the Greek word makarios, which literally means to be happy. 
not in a superficial sense when the sun is shining and the sky is blue, but in a deep inner sense that is there when the sky is dark and life is falling apart. This deep inner sense of well-being. And these eight Beatitudes, I'm not talking about eight different kinds of people, one poor in spirit back there, one mourning over here, one who's meek over here. There are eight qualities that become true in each person. There's a progression as we go through them. And if I have a title to give to this, it would be the ingredients of true happiness or true contentedness, something all of us are looking for, and for most people, which is so elusive. But for those who are brought into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, it's not all about being happy. It's really about being fruitful. But there is a contentedness and there's a deep sense of satisfaction that is there in the process. Look at the first two this morning. I just repeat this for the benefit of those who weren't here and also for the benefit of those who were here but who've forgotten already. But more importantly, to set the context for tonight. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This relationship with God begins with recognizing we do not have what it takes to be what I was created to be. In me, that is in my flesh, Paul writes as well, no good thing. And the only really good thing about me is Jesus Christ. And we recognize Although there are good things in the sense we have abilities, they ultimately are of no lasting value in and of themselves. And it's recognizing our own weakness, our own poverty, that then brings us, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because these beatitudes are broken up, each of them with a condition and then a promise. A condition of promise. The condition is... You're poor in spirit. What's the promise? What comes out of that? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I said this morning, don't think about a place when you think about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is about a person, about a king. That's what it's about. It is about a place in that it's the sphere of his kingship. And as Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not there to be observed or here. The kingdom of God is within you. That's the sphere of God's kingship in this world. He is king of kings and lord of lords in the ultimate sense we know. But the way in which he works in this world is by getting hold of a man, a woman, a boy or girl who recognizes I in myself do not have what it takes by allowing Jesus Christ to be king and to make my life his kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you. When we face that poverty of spirit, we might hide it, we might cover it up, that's the possibility, or we can face it honestly and mourn it, which is the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. And mourning is really what we call repentance. It's deeper than being sorry for what we do, it is recognizing we do what we do because we are what we are, and so it's turning from what we are. And the Sermon on the Mount, for which this is the introduction, talks repeatedly about that. I'm going to refer later in the week to one or two things like that. But for instance, just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, have you heard it said you must not murder? And I imagine the people listening said, yes, we've heard that. That's a good law. 
I keep that. I say to you, said Jesus, if you're angry with your brother, even though you'd never dare put a knife in his back, you're already guilty of murder. You heard it said you must not commit adultery. Yes, I've heard that. I never do that. I said to you, said Jesus, if you look at a woman who lusts after her, you're already guilty in your heart, even though you might never have the courage to go and knock on her door. What's he saying? He's saying, it's not what you are, it's not what you do that is the issue. It's what you are. The workplace of Jesus Christ is not simply behavior modification. Behavior changes not by changing the behavior, because if you simply change behavior, you will behave in company. But behind closed doors, you'll go back to your real self. Later, Jesus talked about those who pray to be seen by men on street corners. That's in Matthew 6, in the Son of Man. Talks about those who fast. They disfigure their faces and fast to show men they're fasting. It's all external. Now he says, go into your room and close the door and be yourself alone behind a closed door. That's where you're really you. Because that's where Jesus Christ does his best work in what we are. And sometimes it's a painful process of realizing we're backed into a corner that, that it's what I am that is the problem, not what I do. That's only symptoms. And well-disciplined people can mask what they are by not doing bad things, but inside they're full of all kinds of stuff. And so you face your poverty, you're honest about it, and you mourn that poverty. And blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And as we said this morning, comforted by who? By the comforter. Who's the comforter? The comforter is the Holy Spirit. It's a name given to him by Jesus on three occasions. And when we mourn our poverty, the Holy Spirit comforts us by replacing our poverty with all the riches of Jesus Christ. He replaces our weakness with the strength of Jesus Christ. He replaces our sin with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He replaces our defeat with the victory of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something, that is very comforting. Now that leads logically to the next, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. I want to look at just one of these Beatitudes tonight. Verse 5. On the basis of facing your poverty and the king replacing you with his kingship in you, mourning your poverty and the comforter doing his work, it leads quite logically to blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The condition there is that we're to be meek, and the promise is you'll inherit the earth. Life on earth will make sense. Let me talk about this condition. What does it mean to be meek? To be meek doesn't mean to be weak. I looked up in my dictionary. It sits on my desk at home, my Oxford English Dictionary. And it says, defines meek, one of the definitions, is to be humble and submissive. 
the logical, con logical consequence of facing our poverty and mourning that poverty is that we walk humbly. A proud Christian is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? We walk humbly for good reason. Winston Churchill was known for his wit. Sometimes it was a bit hurtful for the people he made it about. But one day in the House of Commons in London, the leader of the opposition was Clement Attlee, and Churchill got up and said, Clement Attlee is a very humble man. And people thought, this is, this is surprising. He normally doesn't say nice things about the leader of the opposition. They wanted to say this. We know he's a very humble man because he has an awful lot to be humble about. And so it was a sting in the tail. But you and I are humble for one simple reason. We have a lot to be humble about. <laughs> and facing our poverty and mourning it and allowing the Holy Spirit to come and do his work in our hearts gives us a lot to be <coughs> humble about. And so the logical consequence is that we are meek. Blessed are the meek, those who are humble, because in humility is strength. That is in complete contrast to what our world looks for, isn't it? The world highly values strength and power and ability and aggressiveness and self-confidence and self-assertion. The more you assert yourself, the more you express your abilities, the more you demonstrate your powers, the better you will get on, is what the world says. But this verse says, no. Blessed, happy are the meek, the humble. They're the ones who get on. They inherit the earth where it really matters. Now, if the definition is to be humble and submissive, submissive to who? Well, of course, not submissive to every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Mary, and just go around with the kind of submissive type of lack of backbone. <laughs> this is about being submissive to Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm glad we sang that last song. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Consecrated is a big word. It simply means submitted, Lord, to thee. Given over to you. And this is fundamental to Christian life. You know, Jesus Christ is described as Savior in the New Testament 24 times. He's described as Lord over 600 times. And yet, we're often a lot more interested in his saviorhood than we are in his lordship. In fact, sometimes people have kind of developed the idea that there are really two kinds of Christian, and you can take a choice as to which one you want to be. Nobody says this, but we, we think this. There's a sort of average Christian, and the average Christian is someone who knows Christ as their savior, and the benefit is their sins have been forgiven, and they're going to heaven when they die. And that's the sort of basic level of Christianity. Christ is your savior. But then there's a sort of super deluxe version, if you like. <laughs> and the super deluxe version is when you 
have Christ as your Lord. And so you're not just about being forgiven of your sin and going to heaven. Uh, it's, it's about God directing your life and guiding you and ruling. And if you're going to be a missionary, you need Christ as your Lord. If you're going to be a pastor, you need Christ as your Lord. If you're going to be a bit on the extreme end, you're going to need Christ as your Lord. If you're going to be an elder, it's probably better if Christ is your Lord. But it's kind of optional. But that, of course, isn't true. Romans 14, verse 9, Paul wrote there, For this reason Christ died and returned to life, so that, so that what? So that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why did Christ die? Why was he raised again from the dead? To be Savior? Yes, of course, but something far more than that, that he might be Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15 says, Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So he died for us that we quit living for ourselves, we quit saying what's in it for me, and instead he says we live for him. Now saving us is part of that process, and saving us is an ongoing thing, but it's that he might be Lord. My wife, Hilary, who isn't here, her mother, who's 93, is living with us at the moment, and that ties her down completely. And so she's at home a lot of the time. I'm away a lot of the time, but she's, she's stuck at home. And we do it gladly, and she does it gladly. She has many skills in her life. Uh, her favorite time is not spent in the kitchen, but she's a very good cook, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I enjoy her cooking. Uh, I suppose she came here tonight, and I want to introduce you to her. And I asked her to come up here, and I said to you, ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to meet my cook. <laughs> what do you think she'd say? Well, you're guessing rightly. She probably said, I beg your pardon? Who did you say I was? Well, I, 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 I said, you're my cook. I'm not your cook. But you cook for me, don't you? I mean, I bought your cookbook, remember? <laughs> and a cooker. See, of course I cook for you, but I'm not your cook. I'm your wife. You see, when I got married, I didn't stand in front of a congregation of people and say, I take you to be my personal cook. I said, I, took you to, I take you to be my lawfully, I mean my lawfully, get it right, my lawfully wedded wife. I took her to be my wife. And when, I got, when she became my wife, you know what I discovered? I discovered I got a cook. Now, in case some of you ladies are a bit worried, or some of you men are worried, I, 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 I do cook myself sometimes. I, I do a great boiled egg. <laughs> now, I cook sometimes. It's not my skill either. But the point is this. For me to introduce you to my wife as my cook is a bit like speaking of Jesus just as your Savior. That's a wonderful part of what he does. 
but he came to restore us to a relationship where he is Lord. He saves us to make that possible. But the end result of his saving us is that he is Lord. And so he died and returned to life that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And that's why I think Scripture teaches us to believe that if somebody comes to Jesus Christ and says, I want you to save me, I want you to get rid of my sin, I'm burdened by it, I want to get rid of it, my conscience is troubling me all the time, I want to be forgiven my sin, I want to go to heaven when I die, but I do not want you to tell me what to do in the meantime. That person receives from Christ nothing. How do I know that? Because people tried it in the Bible. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 10, I'm going to read you a very short story of a man we know as the rich young ruler. You probably remember that story. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Let me read you this. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees in front of him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to receive eternal life? I mean, could you have a more brilliant occasion than that? Somebody came in here tonight, ran up the steps, ran down the aisle, fell on their knees on the ground and said, what must I do to receive eternal life? We'd be saying, hallelujah, this guy really means business. Wouldn't we say that? I'm sure the disciples were very excited. He's asking for the right thing. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. I won't comment on that statement, though it's, 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 a, it's a profound statement, but we won't comment on that. Then he said this. You know the commandments? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And before he could finish the list, teacher, the man declared, all these are kept since I was a boy. I'm not sure I believe him. I don't think Jesus did. But that's what he says. Jesus looked at him and loved him, notice that, loved him and said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around him and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't run after him and say, excuse me, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to frighten you like that. Let's, let's negotiate about this. 
would, would you like to have your sins forgiven? Uh, I know you haven't got many because you seem to have kept all the commandments. But you must have a few tiny ones. Would you like to be forgiven? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would. Would you like to go to heaven when you die? Yes, that's my main thing. That's why I said, what do I have to do to attain eternal life? Okay, good. Now, I've got some plans for your life. Uh, would, you, would you like my plans, or are you happy with yours? Well, what kind of plans do you have? Well, for instance, uh, you've got a lot of money, haven't you? I've got some plans as to what we could do with your money. Would, would you like mine or, or yours? No, no, I've already got my own plans for that, okay. Um, you, you single? Yeah. Uh, would you like me to show you who you should marry? Or, or, or do you want to do that yourself? Well, if you show me, what's her name? Uh, I'm not going to give you a name because maybe I want you to stay single. I don't know. I just, do you want my plan or yours? You can handle that. Okay, okay. No, don't get uptight. No, you can handle that. All right. Um, you're young, aren't you? You've got a long life ahead of you. Um, would you like me to direct your paths or steps? No, you can do that. Okay. So all you really want then is to have the few sins you've got forgiven you and to have, you want to go to heaven, that's what you really want, isn't it? Yeah. Well, okay, we can at least uh, agree to that so you can become a disciple at that level and uh, maybe later you'll come back and get recommitted or something and we can take it deeper. But in the meantime, at least if you fall off your camel and you break your neck, you'll know where you're going. <laughs> Is that what Jesus said to him? No, of course it isn't. He let him go away. As far as we know, to a lost eternity. And it specifically says, in the middle of this story, Jesus looked at him and loved him. But let him go. We don't know much about this man. We know three things only about him. We know he was rich, we know he was young, and we know he was a ruler. That's why we call him the rich young ruler, because that's everything we know about him. When you think about it, those three things are very attractive, aren't they? Very attractive to be rich. I don't know, but I've thought about it. Very attractive to be young. I remember. <laughs> Got a good long memory. It's good to be young. Very attractive to be a ruler. I, I, I'm sure I, I don't know that either, really, because my wife doesn't cooperate. <laughs> but I imagine this man sitting down one day and saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm rich. Lots of resources. Maybe he'd inherited them. I'm young, got my whole life ahead of me. I'm a ruler. I tell people what to do, and they do it. Maybe he's in some kind of family business or in some political family or something. We don't know. They began to think about that and thought, all oh, this is fantastic, except one day I'm going to die. I don't have to be old to die. I might die when I'm young, because people do. What can I do about that? And one day somebody may have said to him, you ever heard of Jesus of Nazareth? No, I haven't. Who's he? He's a preacher. No, I don't listen to preachers. But he's preaching about eternal life. Eternal life? 
Man, I was just thinking, if only I could have a life that would never end. Well, you're in luck. He's just leaving Jericho. He's been there. So this young man says to himself, I have a problem. That is that my life is going to end one day, and I don't know when it's going to end. If I could have a life that would never end, everything would be resolved. And here's somebody talking about eternal life. So he ran. And as Jesus was leaving Jericho, he looked down the road. There's a cloud of dust. The man's running up fast as he can, breaks his way through the crowd, falls on his knees, says, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Brilliant question. And Jesus said no. Not because he didn't love him, not because he wasn't one of the elect or anything like that. It's because the man was not willing to surrender his life to Christ, to give his life to him. If any man be my disciple, said Jesus, He must lose his life in order to find it. He must give it away in order to actually receive it in all its fullness. And I know this sounds a bit tough sometimes. It's not about works. It's, not about, it's about surrender. That's what it's about. It's about coming and saying, Lord Jesus, my life is yours now. Whatever happens to my life, of course I've got to go about my business, I've got to look after my family, do all the normal things, but I'm entrusting it to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, as we just sang. That's the spirit of it. That's what it takes. And along with the condition of those who are blessed are the meek, who are humble, who submit, who recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. By the way, it doesn't make you perfect. It's just the attitude, disposition of your heart. It doesn't mean we're not tempted to go and do our own thing and pull away from the will of God because we, we all struggle with temptation along that way, all of us. And we fail, we come back. But it's the spirit. It's like when I got married, I had to stand in front of a group of people and I said to my wife and she said to me, I said to her, forsaking all others, I take you only unto me. And she said, forsaking all others, I think you're unto me. What I was saying was this, I will never look at a girl again the way I look at you. I'll never try to develop a relationship with a woman that I have with you. You have an exclusive place in my life. Forsaking all others, I take you only unto me. I said that on a wedding day. I've lived by that 43 years later. But that didn't make me a perfect husband. Overnight. That took a week. <laughs> no, it didn't. I'm still working on it, still struggling. We still have to work on our marriage. We still have to, hey, there's things here, there's niggling getting in the way. But at the basis of it, there's that disposition. There's nobody else forsaking all that take you only unto me. It's saying to Lord Jesus, forsaking all that take you only unto me. I, you're going to be my Lord. That doesn't mean I don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. And I don't have controversy with, with God. We do. Things go wrong. Things get, we get sucked into things. But it's the basic disposition that when we do, we're coming back as we recognize it and coming back and saying, Lord, I confess, I'm sorry. And we, we rebuild and we, we, we structure again the relationship. And the reason why this is so, so beautiful and so important is because blessed are the meek, they 
inherit the earth. It's interesting, it doesn't say for they will inherit heaven, though they will. That's not the point here. It's that they will inherit the earth. That is, that life on earth will find meaning and purpose when we live it meekly in humility with God than it could ever find in any other way. You see, earth is not just a waiting room for heaven. We're not sitting around, you know, keeping ourselves out of mischief, getting sprinkled with disinfectant once in a while until eventually we, we arrive in heaven. No, this is our workshop. This is the place where we're to be busy in our relationship with God that works its way out in the lives that we live. We were created for this earth. Let me read you from Psalm 139 and verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, says David. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That says David. Before I was born, you knew me, and all the days were written in your book before one of them came to be. In other words, when I was born, God didn't get a surprise and say, oh, where did that one come from? When I was born, when you were born, God looked down from heaven, so to speak, and said, here he comes, here she comes, right on schedule. I've got the book here. Here it is, page one. <laughs> he has a plan. Now, of course, this is a massive subject. We can't only scratch the surface of it now in the time I've got left tonight. But if he has a plan, a purpose for our lives, and he made us and wired us in a certain way for this life, when Jeremiah complained, I can't speak, I'm only youth, I don't know how to speak, and God said, who made your mouth? I did. You don't know it yet. You're equipped what I made you for. And um, God guiding us is part of what he does as Lord in our lives. There's that great verse in Proverbs 3, verse 6, which says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's his promise. Do you know, we're never in the Bible told to pray for guidance. When I realized that some years ago now, I stopped praying for guidance. I was free in a way I wasn't before. I was always worried, is this the right thing? <laughs> if you acknowledge him in all your ways, Lord, you have the right to do with me what you want. I'm available to you. He will direct your paths, whether you can see it or whether you can't. In retrospect, you often see it a lot better than you could see it in prospect. When you make decisions, you think, is this right? I'm not sure if this is right. You look back and you say, I being in the way the Lord led me, which is what Abraham's servant said. I'm quoting him there. When he went to find a wife for Isaac. You acknowledge him, he'll direct your paths. And how does he do it? Here's a key verse. I'll just give you this verse and I'll just talk about it and then uh, it'll take a few minutes to talk about it, but not too long. Proverbs 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul, uh, sorry, Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul says there, Therefore, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Now he says, you've got to work out what God is working 
in. What is God working in? He's working in you to will. That is, he gives you the right desires. He works on your will. gives you the right desires. And to act. That is, he gives you the right dynamic, the ability to do what the desires are leading you in. And then, according to his good purpose, he gives us the right direction. So that verse, God working to will, gives you the right desires, and to act, gives you the right dynamic, that is the right power. According to his good purpose, he gives you the right direction. Let, let, let me talk about that and just change the order a little bit. He expresses his lordship in our lives in this way, expresses lordship in our lives by giving us the right direction. It is according to his good purpose. You know, many are scared of God's plan for their lives. I have done a lot of work with young people. This time next week, I'm going to be in Germany, and I'm going to be speaking that week to about 150 students at a Bible college. It's an English language international Bible school, and I'm going through the book of Romans with them during the week. I have about 15 lectures to give them. And I know these are young people, 18 to 25, most of them. I know there'll be those who'll say, how do you know what is the will of God for your life? Because they're at the stage where they're, they're dreaming about the future and planning ahead and looking ahead. H how do you know? And I also know that because I've had these conversations so many times that many are a little bit frightened of this and a bit nervous about this. We, we sort of think to ourselves, if I say, God, you can show him what job I will do, he'll probably say, what don't you want to do? Okay, go and do it, you know. What, what should I do? The last thing in life I want is to be a dentist, but he'll probably say, go and be a dentist. If you're a dentist, forgive me for this, but I, I couldn't be a dentist. Looking down people's into mouths, breathing their breath, having conversations like, you know. The only thing worse might be being a podiatrist. I can't understand anybody doing that. Oh, Monday morning, great, more corns today. Oh, this is a, this is a juicy one. <laughs> anyway, but that's every man eats to his own. <laughs> but we sort of have that kind of fear. If I say, God, what do you want me to do? He'll probably say, or go and do something that you won't like doing. Do you ever fear that? Young people, do you fear that? Or I say, God, you can show me who you should marry. You just imagine what she's going to be like. Yeah. It'll be a calling. You know, when we fear that, we don't understand the will of God, do we? Because here's a great statement on the will of God. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you notice those three words? Good, pleasing, and perfect. There are two things that are pleasing in this passage. It says, we offer, it says offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Oh, okay, that's what I'm worried about. It's pleasing to him, but it may not be pleasing to me. No. It's going to be to you good and pleasing and perfect. Because 
It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. None of those words mean easy at all. But he's going to lead us in ways that are good and pleasing. So he expresses his lordship over us by giving us direction. But then how does he do this? He expresses lordship in us by giving us desires. God works into will. He gives you the right desires. Great verse that's been very helpful to me is Psalm 37, verse 4. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to read that verse. The wrong way is to read it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you whatever you want. That's the wrong way to read it. The right way, I suggest to you, is it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and the desires of your heart will be God-given desires. He will put the right desires into your heart. So your desires are your desires because you delight yourself in the Lord and he gives you the desires of your heart. He places them within you. I talked to a young man once and he said, I said, what are you going to do with your life? He's about 20, so I'm not sure. The only thing you'd really like to do, he said, yes, I'd like to be a pilot. He said, my dad's a pilot. He flies Boeing 747s for United Airlines. I'd like to be a pilot as well. So why don't you be a pilot? He said, because that's my will, not God's. I said, how do you know? He said, because I've always wanted to be a pilot. And I said, you ever thought about the fact it may be your will because it's God's will, because God puts his desires into your heart and you want it because God wants it. And so maybe it is God's will, even though it's your will. In fact, it's your, it's God, it's your will because it's God's will. You ever thought about that? He said, yeah, but I want to do this for as a Christian. So this is not what God is leading me to do. I said, well, he was your creator before he was your savior. <laughs> I mean, he said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I, I knew you. I gave you your mouth. I gave you your lips, etc." So I said, uh, if this is something you'd really like to do, don't say, well, it can't be of God because I like it. Just give it to God and say, Lord, if this is yours, let this desire which you're going to work in my heart grow or take it away. And uh, he's now a pilot. Because God was leading him that way. And sometimes we are, are afraid of this. We are afraid that, uh, you know, God's will and, and, and my will is somehow incompatible. I talked to somebody once who's going to get married. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit concerned. He was hyper-conscientious. He said, I'm afraid I love my girlfriend too much. I said, why? Well, because I love her more than I love God. It was a different kind of love, isn't it? I suppose it is. But he said, I'm supposed to love God most, and so I do want to love God most, but I love my girlfriend so much, I'm afraid of marrying her, because if I marry her, maybe you should take me away from God. I said, so what do you want? Do you want to marry somebody you don't like? I mean, what are you looking for? Of course you love her. If she's the right girl, of course you love her. But love isn't a capacity. Like, it isn't like a, you know, a, a big drum, a hundred-gallon drum, and you, you've got to give God most, so give him 60. That's 40 left. So you know, you've got your parents, you've got your siblings, so you've got to give them about 10 each. That's about 20 left for your wife. But I feel like I love her with 80 of the gallons, but I've got to limit it to about 20, because that's all that's left. And we're going to get some kids later. Maybe we'll have to knock it down again and have about five each, five gallons each. 
No, 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 it's a capacity. In fact, the more you love God, the more you love other people. And one of the amazing things is when God leads you to marry somebody, it's quite wonderful, it's quite remarkable. You actually love her. Or you love him. <laughs> because that's, that's how he guides you. He works in our hearts. Now we have to check, of course, our desires against what does the scripture say about these things. Uh, well, there are lots of practical, we haven't time to talk about those uh, tonight. So, but, but the basic principle is that God works in us to will. He puts the right desires into our hearts. And uh, we need to allow those desires to be fanned into flame. We check them against other things. Those desires will be wholesome things. If somebody says, I have a great desire to, to run a casino, I think, I say, I'm not sure that came from God because there are other factors involved in this. <laughs> expresses lordship by giving us the right direction his lordship over us he expresses his lordship in us by giving us the right desires and expresses lordship through us because he works in us to will and to act by giving us the right dynamism the right strength for everything jesus christ demands he also by his spirit enables when that rich young ruler went home, the disciples were astounded. It, it says in the next verse, the disciples were amazed at his words. And in verse 26, the disciples, it says, were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? I mean, Jesus has demanded of this man a total surrender. That is unrealistic. Who can do that? Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. When you say, this is too big a demand you're making to be Lord of my life, you're thinking humanly only. You're thinking selfishly only. And he says, with man, this, is, this isn't, this isn't going to work. If somebody says, all right, I'll roll up my sleeves and I'll do everything I can for Jesus, it's not going to work. No it's, no, it's not about him doing something for me. It's God doing something in him and through him. He provides enabling and everything to which God calls us, he enables us. He empowers us. If I have a key verse in my life, if I have a life verse, it's 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 24. It says, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He will do it. Not he who calls you is faithful, so you be faithful and do it for him. It's just surrender to him. You've got to do lots of things. We've got to be obedient. We've got to work at things. When God called me and gave me a sense in my heart that I was to, to preach, I was a, a teenager. And it was the most unlikely thing. At, at school, we had a, a debating class where we had to learn to debate and somebody would put emotions, somebody would oppose it, and 
everybody in the class would vote on it and everybody has to have a go at this. But I could not stand up and put three words together. I was exempt from the debating class. I didn't have to, because I couldn't do it up front. We had drama, I was exempt from drama because I couldn't do something, I couldn't do it up front. I was quiet, inarticulate, and yet in my heart, nobody else knew, I was thinking, I want to preach the gospel. This is crazy. I'm the last person. And, and when I used to preach in the area where I grew up for the next, oh, up until I was 40, you know, 20 years, there are people come to me and say, you're the last person I would have expected to be doing this. You're the last person. Well, if I had looked at my own natural enabling and ability, I would have not gone anywhere. But I got that verse. He who causes faithful, he will do it. Came a key verse to me in my late teens. One and several, but it was a key verse. I said, Lord, You'll have to do it. I, I, I'm going to let you open doors. If you open doors, I'll go through them. And that'll be your doing. And every time, I'll say, Lord, I can't do this, but you can. Thank you. I trust you. And trust him. And he leads. Anybody know Muskoka Woods Camp here? Have you been up there? John McCauley? Do you know John McCauley? He was the director for a number of years. Muskoka Woods is a big camp, a great camp. And John McCauley, he was, a, he was a policeman, actually, in Northern Ireland. Time of the Troubles, at the end of that time. But he, he, he came to Cape May as a, a student, and um, the teams went out. The teams went out to speak in places, and he said, I can't do this, I can't do this. He came to the office and said, I can't. I, I can't, it wasn't me talking with somebody else, said, I'm on this team to speak and I cannot do that. Well, John, as we were preparing this, we thought you'd be the guy to do this. No, I'm not, I'm not. Please get somebody else. Have you ever preached before? No, no never. Well, then how do you know you can't do it? Well, because I can't, but you don't know. But listen, Jesus Christ lives in you, Remember? You think he's enough? Now there's natural ability and gift that comes out, of course. There's gift that develops. But, but, but why don't you go and try on that Sunday, the Sunday night? And John McCauley would tell you in his testimony because he couldn't believe that he spoke for 30 minutes and didn't stop after 10 minutes. And people afterwards said, that was helpful. That was, in, that was good. I liked that. that really, wow, that's fantastic. I couldn't, don't believe that. And so he thought, maybe God wants me to do this kind of thing. And he's been director of Muskoka Woods for a number of years and travels and speaks in other parts of the world. But, you know, let God not only be the source of what you do, but the effect. Let him be the dynamism, the power, the enabling. And uh, we, have to we have to start on the grounds, I can't do this myself. I'm poor in spirit. I mourn my condition. The Holy Spirit's come. What happens now? I become meek. I humbly submit myself to Christ. What happens then? Things on earth begin to make sense. You become, you fulfill the earth. You find your role and your purpose. And it's God who works in you to will and to act. And if you go wrong, don't worry, because 
Isaiah 30 says, if you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Interesting verse. If you go off to the right or the left, don't panic because the voice behind will say, oh, oh, come back, you've gone wrong. What we want is a voice in front, a voice saying, okay, this is God guiding you. Pick up your left foot, move it forward, put it down, get your balance, bring up your right foot, swing it forward. That's it. Put it down. Are you steady? Okay. We want, we want him to direct every step. No, he gives you the compass, not the map. The compass, follow it. Abraham, go to a land. I'll show you when you get there. Where are we going? That way. I know where we're we going. That's not your business. Just go in the direction. And if you go wrong, the Lord says, hey, come back. Like Paul did. Paul was going to Bithynia once, and the Lord said, no, don't do that. Come back. And so he said, I'll go to Asia Minor. And God said, no, don't go there. So he's now he's stuck. He went to the right, went to the left. The spirit stopped him both times. So he went to bed, had a good sleep. But he had a dream in the night of a man in Macedonia. Come over and help us. And he went to Philippi. And God put him in the right track. And uh, so we just trust him. We just trust him to guide us. And whether you're young, middle-aged, old, and, and I may give some example of this later in the week, actually, in our ordinary day-to-day life, there are people God wants us to meet and talk to and sometimes to share the gospel with. Those opportunities come. We just have to be available and say, Lord, I trust you as I go about my normal business. You may say nothing to me. I just trust you to put me in the right place at the right time. You promised, acknowledge him in all our ways. You will direct our paths. And he does. So here's the ingredients of happiness, the first three at least. Face your poverty of spirit. Don't try to be anything. Just acknowledge your own brokenness and allow the king to set his kingdom in your heart. Mourn that poverty, that brokenness. Turn from depending on it and the comforter will begin to do his work in you and replace our weakness with his strength, our poverty with his riches, our sinfulness with his righteousness. And then be meek, humble, submissive to Jesus Christ as Lord. And those who are meek will inherit the earth. Life on earth will have purpose and direction. Does that make sense? What happens next? I'll come back tomorrow night.